Hello and welcome to the Wealth of Knowledge podcast. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera. Everyone knows how important investing is to your long-term financial health, but so many have concerns about how to get started. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about investing questions beginners are afraid to ask, and we have two U.S. News staff experts to help us wade through complex language and provide insight on the best practices to start your investing career. Corianne Hicks is an investing reporter at U.S. News and former fully licensed financial professional at Fidelity Investments. Leveraging the industry expertise she gained at Fidelity, she writes about a range of investing and financial topics to help people prepare for their futures by making more informed financial decisions today. Her coverage often focuses on alleviating the concerns of novice, millennial, and women investors. Thanks for being here, Corian. Thanks for having me, Antonio. John Devine is the senior investing reporter at U.S. News and an alumnus of The Motley Fool and Investor Place. A finance nerd, that's a self-termed finance nerd, I did not put that in John's bio, <laughs> he writes primarily about the stock market and techniques for navigating it successfully. Deeply familiar with blue chips and Silicon Valley giants, think Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Tesla, he also enjoys uncovering the occasional hidden gem. An investor himself, John also enjoys covering behavioral finance, how politics impact Wall Street, and how to optimize your portfolio. John, good to have you on. It's a pleasure. So, Corianne, we're going to be working off a story you wrote for U.S. News called 16 Investing Questions That Intimidate You But Shouldn't. And I want to quickly read your intro here. So, quote, Investing is murky business, like swimming through cloudy waters, without goggles, in the dark with seaweed grabbing at your ankles and trying to pull you down. Anyone could get turned around in those algae-infested pools. In fact, you may be thinking of turning right back around for shore and giving up investing for good, but don't." End quote. That is such a great visual, I think, for the novice <laughs> investor, because uh, I think there's sort of this stereotype, which I think I remember reading uh, for the first time in The Big Short by Michael Lewis, that investing terms are intentionally complicated to keep people out of it. Uh, so we're going to try to spend some time demystifying investing, and it's at times confusing language. But first, I want to talk uh, about your backgrounds. Both of you are relatively young compared to the average investor, I would say, both millennials, and have already been involved with investing for years. So how did you get into it at a young age, and what were some things you needed to learn early on, and what kept you guys going? Great. Well, I guess I can start. Um, you know, I was actually started out of college working as a ghostwriter. And, you know, during the time watching my savings kind of shrink month by month by month, um, which, you know, it's stressful enough when you're, you know, when you're, where your next paycheck's going to come from, and it'll arrive like clockwork every two to four weeks. It's even more stressful when you have no idea where that paycheck's going to be coming from or when. Uh, so during that time, I realized really how important financial security is, and that I don't believe we can achieve our highest potential if we're constantly worried about how we're going to make rent or put food on the table. and That experience really led me to Fidelity Investments, uh, where I learned you know, the best way to create long-lasting financial security and ultimately achieve financial freedom is through investing. As, you know, when you're, if you don't invest, your money can't grow and you can't sustain yourself long-term and you become beholden to your paycheck. So that's that 
based on how I got in. So you took a fairly direct route then, straight to Fidelity. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. After, you know, starving for a few years, I was like, you know what? I kind of need to <laughs> learn how to, this needs to be better, how to provide for myself. And so then from Fidelity to sort of switching over to maybe the, the, the journalistic side of that, how did that come about? Yes. Well, then I realized while working at Fidelity, you know, I loved helping clients every day and helping them make more informed, you know, financial decisions, like said. But I really rather write about finance than maybe sell finance. Um, so I thought when I joined US News, I could have a wider reach and you know, speak to more investors than just the individual who happens to walk in my door or whoever I call, the one person I call that day from Fidelity. And what did you do to sort of to learn? What was your learn, learning techniques, especially starting out? Yeah, well, it was Fidelity force-fed me. <laughs> so when you work as an advisor, you have to get your series licenses, which is, you know, with everything that Securities and Exchange Commission requires you, and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority require you to take certain tests so that you can actually sell these products and advise people on it. So I learned from some very massive books all about the financial services <laughs> industry, the different investments there were, and then really you learn learn by fire because every time someone would walk in and ask me a question if I didn't know the answer I had to go find the answer and come back and tell it to them so a lot of ways like this podcast is people ask me questions and I was like let me get that answer for you and then come back and share it well, we're glad you're here to give us uh, <laughs> give us some answers today Thanks, uh, John how about you how did you get started uh, I have uh, always been interested in the stock market I remember being a kid and uh, coming through the financial papers and, and seeing, you know, the, the quotes each day, not really knowing what it meant. But I noticed the prices were changing and that my dad was paying attention. And um, and my father's a, a plumber, but has always uh, been interested in that sort of stuff. And um, so I took a, a liking to it. And um, in high school, I was lucky enough that my grandmother uh, gave all of her grandchildren um, gifted them all some money, um, and I spent $3,000 on a car, and then uh, put the rest to, uh, in my first uh, investing account, I started a, a brokerage account, and um, and learned some very important lessons early on, actually, because my first uh, move was to go all in on Google, and uh, which was a good decision, but uh, my parents thought I was crazy, and I sold uh, a few months later for a tidy 30% profit, uh, although I would be much wealthier today if I had just held it. So. That's a rare, sort of a rare case where your parents may not have given you the best, uh, the best advice. Usually your parents are extremely helpful <laughs> yeah. with money, but maybe not in this case. I think I remember when I was growing up, I was reading the back of cereal boxes. So I'm sort of impressed uh, that your sort of first things you were checking out were a little bit different from mine. So that's, that's interesting. And uh, I mean, the same question I asked to Corianne, where did you go to learn this information before you knew it? Everybody seems to think you don't know anything about investing, and then you have this sort of this answer of how to do it. What was that arc for you to where you were comfortable investing and, and doing things in the marketplace? Well, I think uh, experience is the best teacher, really. Um, but that's not to say that you can't um, start out and uh, from a solid base of knowledge, but I think that I, I founded the Stock Market Club, of course I did. I told you I was a finance nerd uh, in high school, 
Um, and we had fake portfolios that we had a competition where we tracked who could, you know, earn the most in a certain amount of time. And in college, I majored in finance. Um, so I, I have a little bit of a background there, but I just gravitated towards the more um, financial and quantitative side of things. I mean, I also do have verbal skills somewhat, but uh, was always more of a mathematical person, and that's what uh, got me interested. So Great. Uh, so before we get into the questions themselves, uh, Corianne, most of the questions that we talk about in this podcast are going to come from the story that you wrote. So how did you decide, how did you compile the list? How did you decide which questions needed to be answered? Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> I asked around. You know, I asked friends, family, I asked my colleagues here at U.S. News, and then I um, wait, what sort of questions they had that hadn't been answered about investing. And I also would went on some different you know, chat boards, places like Quora, to see what people were asking, what questions they thought didn't have fair coverage, or which ones I knew I could address well, um, and use those then to as a launching point, and of course, peppered in a few of the ones that I was like, you guys should really be asking this. Let me just help you out here and guide the conversation. So, yeah. All right. Uh, so, the, I mean, the first question is, of course, not from your story, but I thought it was interesting to put in any way. It, it's going to help answer some other questions down the road. Just your basic. What is the difference between a stock, a bond, and a fund? So a stock is, uh, you can think of it like an ownership share of a business. Um, it entitles you, uh, you own a, a small slice of it if you buy a share of a stock, um, and it entitles you to technically the present value of all you know, future cash flows, discounted of course, um, but it, it really is just you're a part owner in the business and you get um, a share of those earnings, uh, future earnings. A bond is more like a creditor, being a creditor, so you're lending basically to the company that you buy a bond in, um, and they pay you interest. Uh, so it's sort of being a bank, if you will, on, on a very small level. And then um, a fund, which I believe you asked about as well, right, um, is a group of stocks or bonds or other assets usually that's uh, managed professionally, and they charge, the, the, the managers, the money managers, uh, charge a, a fee to manage it for you. And usually there's a, a benchmark that they try to follow or replicate, or it's just uh, done some other way. But there's, there's a, gives you more diversification, and money is pooled together, and you can buy a share of that fund. So you lead right into the next question, which is talking about diversification. Uh, I think a lot of people may think it's about how many investments you own, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it? And then we can we talk about diversified funds as well? Absolutely, and you hit it exactly. So diversification, you know, it's not about how many investments you have, but really how those investments work together. So if you think about it, you, different investments will behave differently to the same market or economic event. For instance, what hurts the technology sector, technology stocks, probably won't impact healthcare stocks quite as strongly. So if you have both of those in your portfolio, when something goes wrong for technology, your healthcare will continue to hopefully chug along well, basically keeping you above water, so to speak. Um, so one event doesn't just take out your entire portfolio. 
Uh, and so you want to, when you are diversifying, you want to diversify across like stocks, bonds, and alternative investments, but also within that category, like I said, with technology and healthcare stocks and large cap companies and small cap companies. Uh, and basically by diversifying, it'll just lessen or smooth the investing ride for you. One way to know you're properly diversified is if some of your investments are up while your other investments are down. So I know it's not something anyone wants to look for is the red in their portfolio. But actually, it's kind of like a Christmas tree, you know. Red and green together means you survive better in all weather, which wow. rhymes. That was Did good. we like that? No, that I think so. <laughs> Thanks. Can I trademark that? <laughs> um, and so with the, you know, the same thing holds true of, di of funds. A diversified fund is one that holds multiple asset classes or sectors. So that I, with the idea being that they want to mitigate or reduce the risk and smooth the ride for investors throughout all economic environments. You don't have a rhyme for that one? <laughs> I was trying. I just <laughs> let me think on it. I'll get back to you. Okay. <laughs> uh, and now this is another. Most people will probably know at least a little bit of what this is, but I think it's extremely important for people new to investing to understand it fully, and that's the, this idea, the idea of compound interest and how that can help your investments grow, at, investments at retirement accounts, 401k, yeah. you know, it's a stock, everything. So can you talk about compound interest, how it works, and maybe provide an example of how it'll impact over time, how it works over time? Absolutely. I think um, some people who, who don't know about it, and not everybody does, um, understand it well, Always underestimate it. If, if someone doesn't understand it well, it's always underestimated. It's never overestimated. So there's an apocryphal, probably, quote from Einstein where he said, you know, compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. But the reason that that has continued to be quoted is because it is so powerful. So, for example, if you have $100 and you get a 10% return for two years in a row, um, you don't have $120 at the end. Uh, you have $121 because you earn 10%, have 110 at the end of year one, and then you earn 10% on uh, 110 instead of 100. So it's, it's compounding. It's you're earning interest on interest. And that doesn't sound like a huge difference, 121 versus 120. But over the long term, you know, after 40 years, um, instead of $500, um, which is what you'd have if you just earned arithmetic 10% uh, a year on the 100, you'd have uh, $4,525 versus $500 if you did not compound. So that's how Warren Buffett has become, um, until Jeff Bezos came along, you know, the richest man in the world, you know, pretty much consistently because he started compounding. Uh, like it was his, you know, life's work uh, when he was 11 or something. And now he's quite old and he's done quite well with his average returns. So, so letting the money work for you. Yes. Yeah. Proverbially. So now knowing that mm -hmm. everybody is running and thinking I need to invest now because the sooner I invest, the more time I have to allow to, to compound. Is there a better time of year to start investing? seasonally or based on the calendar? Uh, there are different theories about this. Uh, I think I subscribe to the answer no. There's, there's not. Uh, it's not a good idea to try to time the market 
there's a, a phrase, sell in May and go away, don't come back till Labor Day. I think you miss out on a lot of returns over time. It's We're just quite as good as Dr. Rhyme, Seuss hour yeah. over here. This is going very well. Yeah. But, you know, there is arguably a January effect um, where in January small cap stocks tend to outperform. Um, although more, the more that these effects are known, the less their impact really is over time. So I think the answer is, is no. So a large group of people who are hesitant about investing or worried about investing, don't want to deal with investing for X amount of years, or people with either student loans, uh, credit card debt, or other debt, other loans. So when is the time for them to start investing? This is a complicated question. There's a lot of answers depending on different factors, but people have come to me several times asking, should I invest while I have debt? Should I wait for this debt to be completely paid off until I start investing? Is there somewhere in the middle? What sort of guidance? Are there any guidelines for those those people into how they should handle investing? Yeah, that's a great question and one I get from my friends all the time too because the thought is if I have debt, I should prioritize that, pay it off, invest later. But as John just explained with compound interest, really time is an investor's greatest ally. If Warren Buffett hadn't started at 11, maybe he wouldn't have been the man that he is today. So when it comes to debt, what I like to think of, paying off debt is a form of investing. So for every dollar you pay off on a credit card charging 20% interest, it's essentially getting you a 20% guaranteed return on your money. If you're trying to decide between paying off debt and investing, I look at it as put your money wherever you're going to get your greatest return. So any debt that charges a higher interest rate than your investments can earn, focus on that first. But if you have a lower interest rate debt, you know, like maybe a lot of student loan debt can be lower than what the stock market's returning, then I would say start and just pay the minimum on that debt and put everything else you can into the stock market because that's where your money is going to work harder. So it's kind of a weighing the pros and cons and definitely be done together. But don't have to prioritize. And what percentage of savings should people start investing? Let's say we have a hypothetical person who is now paid off. They don't have a ton of loans or it's manageable or it's, you know, they never had it to begin with in some amazing case. They're ready to invest. They're concerned about how much and sort of at what scale. So what percentage of savings should they start with? I'd say as much as you can, honestly, <laughs> but just invest. You, know, you want to have, it's an emergency fund of, say, three to six months of uh, living expenses in cash or somewhere very safe, just so that if you do encounter an emergency, you're not forced to tap into those investments or take on more debt. But otherwise, it, whatever you can invest, invest it, you know, and uh, I often say, you try to keep pushing yourself too to save even more. You know, if you get a raise, invest half of it or more. You know, if you're gonna take a splurge on a big vacation, then try to double up and save twice as much as that um, in your investments. And even if it's only ten or twenty-five dollars, every little bit counts. And one of the sly, one of the paragraphs in your story: How risky should I be? with my investments. That's, again, everybody asks that question. It's sort of an unknown. There's a lot of fear. Are there aggressive, moderate, safe strategies that maybe based on your age, you should be investing differently or based on your financial situation? You know, the, the risk question is another good one. And it's one I actually argue is the wrong question for people to be asking. I don't think you should 
ask how risky should I be, but rather it's how what goals am I trying to achieve? Because to me, thinking of risk first is like trying to run a race with your eyes staring at your feet. And yeah, you're probably gonna miss more of the potholes or the tree branches, but your chances of reaching the finish line are a lot less if you're staring at the ground. Another way to think of it is when you're driving. You know, the first question when you get in a car is not how fast am I gonna go, which is essentially how risky am I going to be. It's where am I trying to get to and how long do I have to get there? So with that in mind, when you know your goals, then you can decide how much risk you need to take with your investments. So now for someone who's younger and has a long time frame, maybe they're trying to save for retirement, then go ahead and take risk. Be as risky as you can stomach. That's actually a key point there too, is you know, it's always still gonna come back to your stomach because if your investments are so volatile and you see them drop and it makes you go in and press the sell button, then that doesn't do you any good in the long run. So never want to take on more risk than you can handle, but you want to push yourself to see if you have a long-term goal, you can afford to take more risk. Also though, if your goal is far in the future and you it's maybe a small goal, then you don't have to take on as much risk. So you could be a more moderate portfolio. It's kind of letting your goal dictate your risk strategy. The conventional wisdom would be, you know, be risky young and as you near retirement or the age when you're going to need those investments become more conservative so stay started investing in a lot of stocks and then shift to having more bonds which are safer investments as you near retirement and that will help moderate your portfolio and the fluctuations within it so now i think a lot of people who are new to investing they don't think they have investments anywhere and then they sort of realize that they are at a job that has a 401k and they have been paying into this 401k for a, a number of months, a number of years. Should someone invest with the same company where their 401k is located? Is that sort of a safe, easy first place to invest? It can be. Um, it can definitely be a good option, but it really depends. So on the one hand, yeah, having all of your investments housed under one roof is great. It can make it much easier to manage them. Since when you're looking at your portfolio, you want to look at it as a whole, take into account your retirement accounts as well as your non-retirement accounts and measure how all of those work together. But on the other hand, if the company with your 401k or your bank account doesn't have very good investment options or they charge high fees, then by all means, go elsewhere. You know, Find something that has the options you're looking for. And so now I'll, I, I'll ask this to, to both of you. I, again, this is from personal experience. People have come to me asking what to do with sort of old accounts at old jobs. So they had a job, they left, the 401k at that job is just sort of sitting there, and then they start a new 401k at their new job, and they don't really know how to handle that transition. Should they roll that over? Should they keep it there? Should they move it somewhere else? Should they meet with a financial advisor? Their head is spinning, and they're not quite sure what to do. Uh, so do you have any advice for, for that situation? I only recently, uh, I, I'm guilty of this, uh, you know, being confused over this issue as well because it's something that you sort of forget about. And I only recently rolled over into our company's plan. So I would recommend rolling it over so that you just have it all in one place and you can see what it's doing, what it's invested in, and make decisions if you want to alter that plan. Although, if you were fully invested at your old place of work, it's not going to change. It, it's still going to be compounding if you leave it and let it be. So, you uh, it really depends on your 
level of, I guess, paranoia over whether that company is going to be around or whether you can still reach whoever you need to reach in order to log in and stuff like that. I, I think uh, it's fine either way. But no, I was going to say I agree with John um, entirely. Like, yeah, often rolling over is the right choice, but it's a very complicated decision. And so if you are confused, speaking with a financial advisor is great because another concern is like if your old plan maybe has lower fees than your new plan, then you want to leave it in that plan. But at some point, the, if you're no longer employed with a the company, they can force you out and say you have to get rid of, move these assets. They can also make it harder for you to access them when you reach retirement. So sometimes when you're near to the age where you want to start withdrawing, you might even roll everything into an IRA because it's easier to pull money out of an IRA. If you're young and you've got an active 401k, I agree wholeheartedly with John. Put it in the your current plan. That's often the best place to have it. It's automatic and uh, consolidates everything, so it makes it really easy. Now, this is the big ticket question that I expect you guys to have, just the answer. So <laughs> no, uh, no hesitating. What are the best investments for a beginning investor? Is there an advantage to investing with a large company, a small company, uh, a company that that individual may be familiar with, a, a big brand name, or sort of should they be leaning toward those companies that nobody's heard of because they have so much growth potential? <laughs> What's the secret sauce? Yeah, so let's just hear it in a, in a two-minute response. Tell everybody how to become a millionaire. Thank you, uh, thank so you. So, I think that generally, over the years, what I have learned is that I am—I uh, tend to be more of a danger to myself when I go out and make my own financial decisions. Uh, honestly, like, so, like I was saying with with Google, like, I should have just bought it and and let it be, but. As humans, we're very emotional and we like to buy and sell and trade more than we need to. So what I, what I mean is that I think that the average investor should probably buy an index fund and just let it sit and um, that you will be best served over the long term by, by doing that. It's sort of a boring thing to do. And if you want to have some play money on the side, I mean, that's... What I still do, uh, <laughs> but I think that, yeah, it's probably best to do it that way. Uh, big companies, larger companies will generally provide you more safety uh, and, and less volatility. Uh, smaller companies don't have quite the insulation or um, competitive advantages that larger companies do, so there's more risk, but over time they, as a group, tend to generate higher returns, but there's higher risk associated with that, of course. So then what is the difference between an active fund and a passive fund, and are there pros and cons to either one of those? Yeah, so an active fund will try to beat a certain index or benchmark, and uh, they have professional money managers that are making those asset allocation decisions and analysts and all that sort of thing, and with that, naturally comes higher fees because with a passive fund uh, it's just sort of a set it and forget it sort of thing where you simply match the index's uh, return because the fund family has put together a group of assets that mimic the underlying index or benchmark like the S&P or the Russell 2000 or um, Dow Jones or something like that. So generally higher fees are with act, uh, active management and there can be tax repercussions um, but you know it's a little bit more exciting because you can 
have the chance of trying to beat the market. But over the long term, uh, it's been shown that active funds underperform uh, passively managed funds and that lower expenses are the only differentiator, the only way to predict higher returns over time. So you've been talking about fees and expenses. What What is more important, the cost of the fund or past performance? I think John kind of hinted towards it that I would say the cost of the fund is definitely more important. And uh, some might disagree, but you know, cost is something that's controllable. It's a known variable, whereas past performance, as they say, is not indicative of future results. You know, it doesn't really tell you much except that what the fund has done, not what it will be doing. So they, um, even if a fund returned 10% last year, it may or may not return 10% this next year, but you can be sure that you're going to pay your share of the fund expenses, whatever that may be. And uh, an advisor I spoke with actually for the slideshow used an example I really liked where she said if you put $1 million into a fund with a 2% expense ratio, assuming that fund earned 6% per year, after 40 years you'd have $4.8 million, which sounds pretty good. But now if that same fund had only a 1% expense ratio, at the end of 40 years you'd have $7 million instead of $4.8 million. So that's $2.2 million more from a 1% cheaper fund, so to speak. I think that, so yeah, important consideration. <laughs> yeah, so I agree largely that, that fees, that expense ratios are what you need to look at when you're comparing funds when you have two comparable funds. But also, a lot of people like to look at recent returns to, to uh, justify buying into or selling a fund. And that is um, also a good predictor in a way of how it's going to perform in the sense that you don't want to buy the best performing fund of the last year because things tend to revert to the mean, as they say, and the best tend to become the worst going forward and, and vice versa. Um, you know, if you had bought the best fund, uh, you know, maybe in the last, you know, a year ago, it might be a, a Bitcoin fund or something like that, uh, just for example. But, you know, buying Bitcoin at 20000 doesn't look like a good decision anymore. So I'm, I regret that I did, it, did that, you know. Just kidding. But, uh, yeah, no, fees, fees. Fees are what you need to look at for funds. So as we close up here, one of the last questions that was brought up in Corianne's article is, what are emerging markets and should I invest in them? This is looking outside of the United States. And then also, where can somebody learn about these emerging markets and whether or not it's a good idea <laughs> to, to touch them at all? Right. Well, I mean, by tuning into this podcast is, <laughs> is where you learn about them. But the emerging markets, there's different uh, different definitions depending on who you go to. Uh, but more or less, it is countries that are emerging. Uh, their markets are getting more complex. Their financial markets are uh, gaining in liquidity. They may have a stock. We're talking about countries here. So like China is considered an emerging market, even though they've largely emerged, in my opinion, over the last decade. Um, there are risks to emerging markets uh, in terms of currency um, risks and geopolitical risks and social unrest and all that stuff. But 
I think that it is important to have some exposure to non-U.S. denominated investments, because uh, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, we're all, most of us are quite over-invested in the U.S. We get paid in U.S. dollars, we live here, we have loans, you know, for our homes um, in U.S. dollars, and we invest in U.S. stocks, and where's the diversification? So I, I think it's important, um, and you can accomplish that easily with a uh, fund. Um, there are many funds that will help, help you do that. Is that something you think a beginning investor should get into or can get into, or should they sort of wait until they're maybe a little more seasoned? I, I would say wait it out. I mean, the U.S. has been pretty good to <laughs> investors uh, over, over the long term and probably stay a little bit closer to home to begin with. And now this is the last question outside of, uh, Corian, outside of your excellent piece, but what's the best investing advice that you too remember getting, uh, and how can others follow that same advice? I have two pieces of advice that were quite good. One was from my best friend's mother in high school and sort of brushed her off, but I remembered it. She said to... Hold on to the Google stuff. Don't yes. listen to your parents. Yes. <laughs> Karen, I should have known. Um, she told me that I should put away 15% of every paycheck and I'd be a millionaire by the time I retired and, and have it uh, 15% and put it in the stock market. So like a company plan 401k, I do not currently do that because that's a lot of your paycheck. But I do um, approximate that by going up a percentage point in what I donate to the 401k each year. And if you get a raise, you should also go up a percentage point. That's a good rule of thumb. And it just forces some discipline on you that, you know, speaking personally, I wouldn't otherwise have. So it's good to automate that. And then the second piece of advice is uh, from my father. During the depths of the financial crisis, uh, I was freaking out. And uh, he told me this is the exact wrong time to sell. And, um, and that ended up being prophetic. But, uh, you know, just when there's blood in the streets, you know, that's when you should actually be buying if, if you have any money. Most people don't at that point. But because otherwise you lock in your losses and you, you doom yourself, really, to um, bad returns. Over time, things will get better and the markets will recover. Some good advice. And maybe I'll just re-say what he did. That's the best, best advice I've gotten. Um, <laughs> no, I think, can I say my best investing advice came from Nike and is just do it? Like, don't <laughs> let all these intimidating factors keep you away. If you get invested, start early, start young, and stick with it. You know, don't um, try to time the market or worry about doing it wrong so much as just not doing it all. That's, I think, the important thing for all investors is to just get your feet wet, and it's okay to make mistakes. I mean, hopefully they're minor, but if you need help, find resources like this podcast or usnews.com or advisors to in books. There's so many resources out there, so don't let intimidation keep you away. John and Corianne, uh, I want to thank you both for coming on to help shed some light for beginner investors. I hope to have you guys on again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, thank you. Antonio. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Hope you learned something to help gain confidence and knowledge as you begin investing. Check out our other episodes and go to money.usnews.com for advice, rankings, and tools on all things investing. And please like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast 
so that we may help more people make smarter decisions with their finances. I'm Antonio Barbera. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. See you next week.